and give her courses to steer so that she went right down the same path that we had just went down. You're trying to calculate set and drift on another ship, basically. That's massive. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that has a totally different maneuvering characteristics than you do. This is Preble Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. This is Stephen Phillips. I have the deck and the con for today's podcast. Today, my guest is Captain Dave Jackson, U.S. Navy retired. Dave graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy in 1979 with a Bachelor of Science in Management Technology. He later earned an M.A. in Foreign Affairs and Strategic Planning from the Naval War College. At sea, Dave served as Ordnance Officer aboard USS George Phillip FFG-12, as Anti-Surface Warfare Officer aboard U.S. Saratoga CV-60, Weapons Officer on USS Kelch FF-1049, and Electrical Officer aboard USS Carl Vinson CVN-70. Dave commanded USS Impervious, MSO-449. During this time, Impervious and her crew served in Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm, which we will talk about today. Dave later commanded the Arleigh Burke-class destroyer USS Stout, DDG-55, and major command as the Commodore for Destroyer Squadron 50 and Middle East Forces in Bahrain. Dave retired from the Navy in July 2005. Today, he supports Midshipman Experiential Leadership Development as Command and Seamanship Training Squadron Skipper and is an adjunct senior military instructor at the Naval Academy. It is important to note Captain Jackson's personal decorations include the Defense Superior Service Medal, Legion of Merit, and two Bronze Stars Medal, one with a Combat V distinguishing device. Dave, welcome to Preble Hall. Thank you, Steve. Good to be here. Iraq's only access to the sea is through the Shad al-Arab waterway, which has been contested with its neighbor, Iran. So in August 1990, Iraq invaded Kuwait, its neighbor to the south, to obtain more coastline and port facilities that would enable access to the Persian Gulf. The United States led an international effort to liberate Kuwait. The first stage, which was a diplomatic effort combined with a buildup of forces in neighboring Saudi Arabia and the Persian Gulf itself, was called Operation Desert Shield. The kinetic phase, which began on January 17, 1991, was called Operation Desert Storm. U.S. planning during Operation Desert Storm included an amphibious landing, U.S. Marines going ashore to repatriate Kuwait. This was thwarted as Iraq laid a series of minefields in the approaches to Kuwait. The mines themselves were a combination of Lugum 145 moored contact mines and Italian-made Manta bottom influence mines. The former lay below the ocean surface and would detonate when a ship physically hit them, when it came into contact with them. The latter were initiated by a combination of acoustic magnetic, and seismic signals created by a passing ship. The effort to clear these minefields was recently discussed at the Surface Navy Association annual meeting. A link to the video will be included in the show notes. Dave was one of the guest speakers for that discussion. Today, I've asked him to join us to discuss his role in the conflict in more detail 
and share with us his experiences during his command tours that followed Desert Storm. Dave, you commanded an aggressive class uh, ocean minesweeper. Can you describe the ship's construction and configuration to include the sonar and sweep gear? Sure, Steve. So the ship I commanded, Impervious, was launched in 1952. She was constructed of wood, had diesel engines that were constructed with aluminum blocks so that the whole ship was designed to reduce the magnetic signature of the ship so that it could go over a magnetic influence mine without setting the mine off. And then the sweep gear that was towed astern would then influence the mine. Uh, She was designated an MSO, or ocean-going mine uh, countermeasure vessel. She had a dual mine hunter and mine sweeping capability. She could hunt for mines with her SQQ-14 sonar or influence and detonate mines with magnetic or acoustic sweep gear or finally to cut the tethers on moored mines with mechanical sweeps. Though not installed when built, Impervious also had a small remotely operated vehicle on board which was used to investigate but not destroy the mines. During Desert Shield, forces were flowing into theater. Impervious and the other mine warfare ships were transported to the Gulf by a heavy lift ship, Super Servant 3. But you and your crew were conducting pre-deployment workups aboard USS Engage. Can you describe how you and the crew prepared? Sure, Steve. While the, the ship was being lifted over to Iraq, correction, while the ship was being lifted to the Middle East, the CO and a skeleton crew took her over on Super Servant 3. The rest of her crew was left behind in the United States, uh, and at the same time, reservists that were assigned to the ship were activated and mobilized uh, so that they could be used to, to man the ship. They had trained on the ship before, but they many of them had never envisioned being deployed on the ship and sent into a war. So 25% of the crew on this aggressive class minesweep were reservists. And so during the time frame that the ship was being transported over to the Middle East between late August and October of 1990, the crew were training off the coast of Mayport. And we were doing primary mine countermeasures work as well as doing damage control uh, training just to prepare for, for their use once we arrived in the Middle East. Once the crew was prepared, you flew into theater and you had a change of command taking over Impervious. You have a personal connection with the ship, correct? Yes, I do. When, when I was selected for Lieutenant Command, the detailer asked if I wanted to command a, a hydrofoil missile, a boat, a PHM, or a minesweeper. And I told him I'd prefer a minesweeper only because it had a more complex mission and a larger crew. He said, well, the only MSO he had available at the time was Impervious. I smiled and, and, and told him that my mom would be happy because she had christened the ship when she was 17. So I was honored and thrilled to be taking command of mom's ship. So you have to tell that story. How did she end up becoming the, the person that, that christened the ship? So her dad was a Class 27 grad uh, who, was a, who initially was a submariner. He was in command of a submarine off the Philippines when the war broke out. And uh, after the war, he went on to switch into the EOD, uh, EDO community and was in command of Mare Island Naval Shipyard when the aggressive class minesweeps were being built. And so he had the, um, the honor of having his daughter christen one of the ships. 
That's so cool. Yeah. Today I'm, we're commissioning or commissioning so many ships that you wouldn't have a lowly captain uh, having his daughter christen right. a ship. You know, it'd be a senator or, or some statesman. Uh, so it's pretty special. That's very cool. So I have to ask, do you remember what uh, submarine he was on in the Second World War? I want to say Stingray. Yeah. Um, it was off the Philippines. You know, that's, we, we had some challenges that time with young COs. He was a lieutenant commander who weren't very aggressive. And so when the war broke out, uh, they fired the CO that had Stingray, and he relieved him and then went off and uh, started sinking Japanese vessels like the ship was supposed to do. Right. So it's yeah. interesting. So now we're getting into the Second World War, but I think I've heard the statistic that I'm, I'm not going to remember the statistic of Japanese tonnage sunk, but the vast majority of it was sunk by 15% of the U.S. Navy submarines. So most of them went out on patrol and didn't do any, you know, returned, never sunk anything. And yep. then you had others that would go on patrol and sink five, six, seven ships on, on their patrol. So, right. yeah, interesting. And they have a rep. Yeah. yeah. So let's come back to Desert Storm and Desert Shield. What was the turnover process like? Uh, did the whole crew arrive together, or did you arrive piecemeal? How did that yeah, we, play we out? We all flew in. Um, we were flown into Bahrain and arrived just as the, the heavy lift ship was disembarking the ships. So I met up with the CO, who was uh, Lieutenant Commander Steve Bradley. After a week, we turned over, and, and I took command of the ship on October 13, 1990. We spent another week in Bahrain reprovisioning the ship, going through and repairing anything that needed to be repaired, and then we got underway for Abu Dhabi, UAE. The mine group had determined that Abu Dhabi would be a great place for us to, to do workups of the ship, and so... Thanks to the gracious, um, graciousness of the country of the UAE, that they turned over Port Zayed to us, which was a container port. And they, they established a place where we could not only tie up the minesweeps, but also could, could land six uh, MH-53 helicopters and berth all of the Hilo crews and support staff. And so it was a, a pretty huge undertaking by the UAE, and without it, we could not have had a base of ops to go to. Yeah, I first learned about that when I saw the SNA lecture online, or the, I'll call it lecture, maybe it was a series of lectures, because different participants spoke about their particular roles. It was really interesting. Let's get into it a little bit more. So there was a mine warfare group that was formed under the command of Captain David Grieve. You mentioned some of the other elements of the MCM group. So let's go through those. You had a number of minesweepers. How many were there? So there were four U.S. minesweepers. You had three aggressive class minesweepers, which were adroit, leader, and impervious. And then you had one of the brand new MCM-1 class ships, the first ship of the class, the Avenger. Okay. So there were four surface MCM units. And then you had six AMCM, or airborne, mine countermeasure units, which were MH-53 Echoes uh, from h M squadron number 14. We did not have EOD units attached to us at this point. They the U- the UMCM. January. Yeah. The, Near and dear to my heart. Right, right, exactly. Um, so those guys didn't arrive, at least uh, for our purposes, until January. Okay. They were still in Bahrain uh, supporting uh, the floaters that were arriving you know, off the beach into Saudi Arabia. So now you're in theater, you've taken over Impervious, 
you and the crew are part of the MCM group in Abu Dhabi. What happens next? I, I'm guessing at this point then more training occurs. Correct. We, we spent from the 24th of October when we arrived in Abu Dhabi until the 17th of January when Desert Storm kicked off. We spent training uh, and working up. And so all of the crews had to recertify with their mine countermeasures uh, certification which was conducted by Mine Warfare Command out of Charleston. So Mine Warfare Command flew out and uh, recertified us. They set up a practice minefield off of Abu Dhabi, which consisted of the threat mines that you had mentioned, the Lugum 145 uh, and the Manta. And we also had other, other bottom mines just, just to give us a, a good mix. Uh, they used the versatile exercise mine, the VEMS, which simulated those mines and could be influenced just like a real mine. And so you knew if your minesweeper was influencing that mine and would have set it off or influenced it to, to uh, blow up because you were sweeping properly. And so it was a, a very complex minefield that we practiced in for the months before we went up north. The other thing we did was we interoperated with the airborne mine countermeasures helicopters something we had never done before. And so what we did is we would stream the Mark 103 uh, mechanical cutters for the helicopters so that they could come over our ship, grab that, that uh, sweep, and then run their missions and then come back and jettison it over our fantails uh, so that they could maximize their time on station and operations. And so we practiced doing that off of Abu Dhabi. So then you would take the tow from them and take it back into port? No, well, we'd, re, we'd pull it all back in, but we would keep it rigged, and another helix would come over and grab it from us. Mm -hmm. And so they'd just keep coming out and grabbing it from us so that they could stay on station. I see. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, I was on um, USS Inchon after she'd been configured as a mine warfare command ship. And we deployed with four of the Avenger class, and we had HM-14, and I think we actually had two HM-15 aircraft on board. And what they used then was ribs. The ship had new cradles put on board for ribs that were assigned to the squadrons for the purpose of, of that mission. They would get in the water, right. launch the sleds, tow the sleds, and the helos would get the sleds from those ribs. So that's why I, I cued on that. That's so interesting. It's a similar, similar concept. Right, right. Um, the other thing we did is we interoperated with the, the uh, UK. Mm -hmm. So the UK had uh, three hunt class minesweepers, hunters over there. Mm -hmm. They were not assigned to the MCM group at this point, but we did interoperate with them. And we did, you know, we did formation streaming with sweep gear out, which we had never done. And so you'd have your, your sweep gear out in a column formation staggered so that you would increase the sweep width of the channel you were sweeping by having multiple ships all having the same sweep gear right. out. And uh, we'd never done that. That's amazing. Yeah, so it was pretty cool. We also ran all of the MCM ships through a portable degaussing range that Mine Warfare Com had set up off of Jebel Ali, UAE. And by having that degaussing range, we got, we were able to tailor our magnetic signature as low as we could. And at the end of the day, we found out that leader and impervious had the lowest ma uh, magnetic signature of any of the surface uh, sweet, uh, mine hunters in the U.S. inventory. 
Avengers was considerably higher, even though she was brand new. And the Hunt class uh, UK ships were lower than Leader and Impervious. And so based on that, the MCM group tailored the operations for the ships based on what the threat signature or what the threat was and uh, to ensure that we minimize the risk to the surface MCM assets. Then, Do you remember what caused that? Like, was it that the de- the degaussing system on those ships were simply more effective in, you know, reducing their signature? Was it that they were smaller and had less material on board that created the signature? They were designed better. I mean, the the UK ships were made out of GRP, glass-reinforced plastic. Their engines were suspended from the overhead in cradles. That's very different. So, it, I mean, they were designed... Not that our ships weren't designed to be mine hunters, right. but they they took it to the next level. And so they they had a much lower signature. Am I remembering correct that the aggressive class had Douglas Fir was the hull? It was Douglas Fir. And I think the Avenger might be Douglas Fir, but they also had, in my memory, I think they have a fiberglass coating over top of it. Does yeah, that they had the sound skin right? coat. Yeah. Correct. We had... Uh, plywood over our Douglas fir, mm-hmm. which provide a sacrificial layer of wood for sea borers to, to attack uh, without getting into the Douglas fir. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our engines were Waukeshaws, which was a, a marine diesel with an aluminum block. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, you know, there were, our ships hadn't deployed in a long time in a right. mine countermeasures role. Now, my ship uh, was one of the few that had participate in market time. So it, it, during the Vietnam War, it was deployed to do mine countermeasures. So because it hadn't deployed in a long time in that role, we had to do a lot of housekeeping. You know, take the washing machine that had been installed, take the Coke machine that had been installed, all of which had magnetic signatures, and get rid of them. You know, you had to, you had to just go through the ship and do a good magnetic uh, cleaning, if you will, to make sure you're driving down that magnetic signature as much as we, you know, as you could. That's um, interesting. And that's what we ended up doing. And that's why our signature came down as much as it did. Uh, finally, we did participate in MCM operations with the Saudis. So we deployed up north uh, and op- operated with the Royal Saudi Navy off Jabal, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. All of, all of this was to enhance the inner workings, but interoperability between the allies um, because we were building up during Desert Shield, building up our competence, building up our capabilities because we knew if, when, if and when Desert Storm kicked off, we were going to be needed because at, all the while we're doing this, they're detecting mines off the coast of Kingdom Saudi Arabia. Uh, so we knew mines were out there. We had overhead imagery that showed the Iraqis laying mines, but uh, General Schwarzkopf made the decision not to let anyone take out those mine layers because he didn't want to kick off the war before he was ready to. And so even though Admiral Maz, who was the NAVSEN commander, wanted to go up there and take out the mine layers, he was told not to uh, because... General Schwarzkopf and the ground forces were not ready yet. And so we basically let the Iraqis lay a whole bunch of mines, and we didn't know exactly where they were. 
And so that was the challenge that awaited us once Desert Storm kicked off. And so it created a much more difficult problem. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. So then Desert Storm, the war starts. What was the MCM group and, and then thus what was Impervious's mission as, as part of the effort to liberate Kuwait? We all knew that, that the mission was to conduct an amphibious assault on Kuwait. We had an amphibious group there. Um, Marines were embarked and ready to go ashore. And so our mission was to clear a path to a, a corridor, if you will, in order to establish battleship fire support areas for the battleships to go in and commence gunfire support, and then to con- clear an amphibious echelon area to launch an amphibious assault onto Kuwait. That was the mission uh, that we were prepared to, preparing to do. I mean, yeah, I, if you've ever seen a picture of an aggressive class minesweeper, you know it has big white fish on it that are used to divert the sweep gear. Right. We painted those gray. I mean, we, we tried to camouflage the ships as best we could because we, were, we knew we were going to go right in off the coast of Kuwait, which is a hostile territory. Uh, and so we did as prepared as much as we could to get as close as we could to Kuwait to carry out our mission. There were two mine strikes on February 18th, 1991. In fact, we're recording this on February 19th, 2022, so yesterday was the anniversary of these mine strikes. USS Princeton, an Aegis cruiser was assigned to protect the mine warfare forces, set off an Italian-made Manta bottom influence mine at 7.15 a.m. local. But earlier on that day, USS Tripoli, an LPH that was employed as the mine warfare command ship, hit a Lugum 145 moored contact mine at 4.36 a.m. local time. So, Dave, tell me about what happened with Tripoli and how Impervious and the crew responded. Sure. So, backing up just a, a little bit, the evening of 15 February, Impervious and Leader were detached with the mission of leading a U.K. replenishment group who were in transit to the Dora oil field. We spent two days with the U.K. group, and we were detached and told to join Tripoli on the 17th of February. As we joined Tripoli, we were alerted to the possibility of a Silkworm missile launch. We were put on station 500 yards astern of Tripoli and proceeded east to clear the Silkworms. At 0436, Tripoli struck the mine. Impervious immediately went to GQ. We closed Tripoli, lowered our sonar to search for mines. When we joined Tripoli, there was a smell of fuel and clothing in the water. She had punctured a fuel tank and a sea bag locker. Fortunately, there were no crew in the water. Tripoli anchored, and Leader and Impervious began searching for a path to the east out of the minefield. We were using a breakthrough objective, which meant we had to find and plot mines, but don't take the time to destroy them. Over the next 14 hours, we searched a 10-square-mile area, Impervious detected 25 non-mine-like and four mine-like contacts. At 2000, Impervious and Leader closed Tripoli to commence a lead-through. A discussion ensued with the Commodore on what path to take. He deferred to me after I described what was on the track that his staff wanted us to take. Later, it was determined that the staff had misplotted a mine. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I... It took some convincing, but I'm glad we did the route we did. Yeah. Uh, or else she would have hit another one. That would have been most bad. Yeah. 
2048, the lead through commenced on a base course at 090 true, speed four knots. It was a very complex seamanship evolution because Tripoli's bulkhead started panting at a speed above five knots. And below three knots, she lost steerage way. And so you're trying to lead her out of a minefield uh, on a very slow course. Just creeping uh, along. Just creeping along. And, and oh, by the way, at the same time, there's a knot and a half current going. So you're trying to reverse plot where she was and give her courses to steer so that she went right down the same path that we had just went down. You're trying to calculate set and drift on another ship. Basically. That's massive. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that has a totally different maneuvering characteristics than you do. So it was a long night. And so we, we got through there. And at 0042 on the 19th of February, uh, she was out clear of the minefield. Uh, she anchored. And the crews took a break, well-deserved break. So then after the, you, you got Tripoli out of the minefield, she went into shipyards for repair. What happened to her after that? So, not immediately. Okay. So, Tripoli anchored when she was clear of the minefield, and she spent the next five days doing my airborne mine countermeasure operations. So, she's still a, a platform for she's, the helicopters. Yeah, she's still a platform for the helicopters. We still had a mission to accomplish, and so she stayed at it for the next five days until she ran through all the aviation fuel she had, and then she had to leave station. And so, then she went off station and we continued to do our, our work. Okay. So what did Impervious and the crew do after the Tripoli incident? So after, after extracting Tripoli and Princeton from minefields, the effort was renewed to clearing the battleship fire support areas as well as the path to those, those areas. Uh, and so for the first time, we embarked EOD teams. Uh, Impervious embarked a U.K. Meyer team, which is a mine investigation, recovery, and exploitation team, a joint leader and avenger embarked U.S. EOD teams. And so we spent the next, next weeks going through and rendering safe whatever mines we, were found, we discovered, as well as doing influence sweeping of, of the area to, to ensure that the, the channel and that the battleship fire support areas were cleared. On the 23rd of February, Adroit led the Missouri into her battleship fire support area. On 25 February, we recovered a, a Russian UDM uh, 500 mine, which, oh, by the way, didn't have anything inside it. There was oh, wow. No, there was no sensor package. They just it dropped was, the shape over the they side. They just dropped the shape over the side, which is a massive shape, by the way. At the end of the day, 75% of the mines that the Iraqis deployed were maldeployed. You know, the Lusium 145s didn't rise up uh, into the sea volume as high as they should have. There are a lot of mines like the, the UDM that we had discovered didn't have any sensor packages in them at all. But every one of these contacts still had to be investigated. Still have to deal with you it. still have to deal with it, along with all the other garbage that's on the floor of the Arabian Gulf, like 55-gallon drums and sections of pipe and... You know, all the other stuff that's on the bottom uh, you had to contend with. On the 25th of February, a silkworm missile flew over us en route to the Missouri and was shot down by the HMS Gloucester. Wow. On the 26th, 26th of February, 
we led the uh, Wisconsin into her battleship fire support area. And by lead through, I mean, you know, you have a battleship 500 yards astern, you know, that you're leading into her box, uh, which was pretty cool. After we got her in the box, CO Wisconsin had me over for lunch uh, in his cabin, much nicer cabin than mine. Uh, <laughs> it, it was pretty cool. So anyway, Dave Bill was, was his name and uh, a good man. Did you ever um, get to see any of the battleships firing their main guns? Very much so, because they would fire over us because we were clearing to the west of where where they were. And so they'd be firing over us at night. I bet that was a sight. It was to pretty see. awesome. I mean, it was you hear it. It was pretty pretty cool. Amazing. Uh, on the 28th of February is when hostilities ended, but the mines did not know that. And so we'd spent we had a lot more work to do. Even though the ground war was over, the sea war against the mine was just beginning. Am I right? It was months before all of the mines could be cleared. Like, I want to say maybe even August or September of 91 before everything was cleared. So it was April. The end of April is when we had cleared the the Q route, if you will, the channel to get into Kuwait because there was a it's very important to get commerce restor- restored to restore Kuwait. And so the channel into Kuwait Harbor was cleared at the end of April. But it was the end of September of 1991 is when all the mine danger areas were cleared of mines. And so it took that long. But by then, you know, by April, we had the countries of Belgium, uh, Holland, Germany, uh, and Japanese all joined in on the effort. They didn't participate in Desert Storm, but they did join in on the effort to you know, clear the mines. The amphibious landing then never happens. If I remember, the laying the mines from the Iraqis' perspective was an effective means to prevent the amphibious landing. And then land forces sort of do a button hook around uh, to Kuwait. And so then as a result, the Marines never go ashore, at least never go ashore in an amphibious landing. Maybe they come through the Q route and end up going ashore Kuwait that way administratively, but there was never an amphibious assault as a result. Is that correct? Yeah. I, if you read a book like Sword and Shield, Schwarzkopf had decided back in October that he was just going to do a feint, but he wanted to keep the Iraqis looking to the sea. And so even though we hit mines, we continued to do mine clearance operations. We continued to give indications that we were still going to conduct some kind of amphibious raid Because then you operation. hold forces in Kuwait. You hold the forces in Kuwait looking towards the sea, yeah. which, which, is, which was our mission. And yeah. so we did that. So what else happened then during the command? I mean, I, I know that you said that you went and you cleared all these areas, but can we drill down sort of deeper into the things that happened with your remaining months on board? So after the hostilities, as I said, we, we focused on the Q routes. Uh, and, and when we were doing mine sweeping or mine clearance operations, we do it for a 72-hour period. And during that time frame, all crew were topside. I mean, no one was manning the engineering spaces. You didn't have anyone cooking. You know, there was no one below decks. Because if you hit a mine, you wanted everyone to be blown clear. So you all wore your life jackets were partially inflated uh, so that you could get blown clear and float if you hit a mine. So we were eating cold, cold MREs, and that's what we did for 72 hours at a time. 
it was an environmental nightmare because you had the, the Iraqis had dumped a whole bunch of oil in the water and you had oil wells on fire. So the smoke from that, you know, as you were playing with sweep gear, as you were doing your mission, you know, the sailors would have oil all over their hands. I mean, it's just nasty. But we continued to do our operations. You know, the, the airborne sweeps, the Mark 103s and the Mark 105, the helos were doing precursor ops with those sweeps. The U.S. guys, uh, surface guys, we were conducting influence sweeps for the bottom mines. And then the U.K. forces were in, you know, inshore doing the, the uh, hunting for the mines that were near Ashweba Harbor and the other harbors of Kuwait just to clear those mines so that we could, again, open up commerce. Um, on the 3rd of March, the Iraqis finally told us what their plans were. And so we had a chart that showed where their mines were, and it showed about 1,400 mines had been put in the water by the Iraqis. On the 22nd of March, the leader influenced what was probably a manta mine, and the shock of that broke her engines. And so she had to be towed down to uh, Bahrain to, to be restored. And, and ships started doing their re- rotation, their crew rotations. Right. You know, leader and Avenger started theirs in March, impervious and adroit. We rotated in April. And so another crew came aboard and took over from us. Was that the beginning of the rotational crew concept? I mean, yes. when I came into the community, it was well established. And right. in fact, there were some crews, I think, that had ship names, you know, that rotational crew, you know, Cardinal. Yeah. But there were others that were rotational crew Bravo. And so it was well established by the time I, I came into the community. Yeah, for, for us, this was a new concept. I mean, boomers, you know, submariners had done this for years. Right. With Blue and gold. Crew, right. Blue and gold crews. Right. Uh, for me, it was a new concept. Because it was it, it was important, so you could keep the ships on station and then just rotate a crew through it. Made a great deal of sense, but you had to reinforce with your crews that okay, I know you have a bunch of favorite tools. You got to leave your favorite tools behind. Oh yeah. You, you can't keep parts. You got to leave the parts behind. And then whenever whatever ship you end up on, you need to take ownership of it. You know, it's not someone else's ship, it's now your ship. Right. And so there's there's that ownership thing. Right. Uh, and so all of that was important um, to to the rotational concept. Really interesting. I always enjoy talking about mine warfare, but as I promised in the intro, I'm also interested in the commands that you had following mm-hmm. Impervious and following Desert Storm. So you commanded Stout, an early bird-class destroyer. What happened during that tour? So Stout was Stout was christened by Mrs. Borda. I was the aide to the CNO, Admiral Borda. And so when we went to that christening, he said, how would you like to command that ship someday? I said, sure. And lo and behold, a few years later, I, I went to go command Stout. Uh, Stout did deploy to the Arabian Gulf as part of the Enterprise Battle Group. We were told to expedite our, expedite our transit because the UN was having a hard time getting Iraq to adhere to UN sanctions because of the weapons of mass destruction. So we made a nonstop transit across the Mediterranean and entered the Gulf. So we did two unreps and, and just kept going and then got, got 
into the North Arabian Gulf ready for a call to fire. Operation Desert Fox began on 16th of December. And what year is this? And this is, uh, I want to say, 1988. 98. And it lasted until the 19th of December. During that operation, uh, we launched strikes in two barrages of 49 Tomahawks in total. Coincidentally, HMS Beaver also participated in the operation. It was commanded by a good friend of mine, Richard Ibbotson, who was commander at the time. He had commanded the UK minesweep, the Herworth, during Desert Storm. So I got to, to rejoin up with him. In fact, when, when I had command of Impervious, we would raft up alongside Herworth, and we'd have grills going, and he'd, his crew would bring a beer. And so we had, not during battle, <laughs> this is during workouts, <laughs> right. but we, we had some great, great cookouts on the stern of, of Impervious. And so after Desert Fox, we pulled into Bahrain, and Beaver pulled in a stern of us, and we fired up the grills again and had the crew of Beaver over for uh, some beer and, and steaks. I love it. That's a great story. Yeah, it's interesting. You're in a small group of folks. There's not many that have launched tomahawks in an actual operation. And 49, I mean, did you have any left after firing 49 tomahawks? Um, we had, let's see, I had 54 cells, and four were surface missiles. Okay, so that's 50. I had one tomahawk left. And in fact, my relief <laughs> was a little miffed when he came to say, I relieve you, sir. Uh, he's like, okay, thanks. Thanks, dude. Right. You, left, you left me Winchester. Not a lot of rounds here. Nope. So, so then shortly after 9-11, you took command of Desron 50. Uh, what were the highlights of major command for you? Once again, I was in the Gulf. Uh, once again, we had conflict. Uh, so... Two, two weeks, three weeks after I took command, we were in the midst of Operation Enduring Freedom. Uh, it was right after 9-11, and there was a buildup going on with ships into the, into the AO. At the peak, we had 17 ships from 10 countries. I had 38 SEALs at one point who were charged with doing hostile interdiction. I, I still had all the minesweeps assigned to me. And so the mission was twofold. The first was to interdict Al-Qaeda if they were trying to transport personnel or weapons by the sea. And then the second was to continue the UN sanctions against Iraq because they were still doing bad things with regard to weapons of mass destruction, and so we were enforcing those sanctions. Fortunately, I had some great folks working for me, and so in the North Arabian Gulf, I was able to delegate the UN sanction enforcement mission to a US or a, I'm sorry a UK or an Australian commander and then in the GU or the Gulf of Oman I was able to delegate al-Qaeda intercept operations to a Canadian commander and so between those two it worked very very well my staff and I spent about 75% of the time underway we were either embarked on the Australian ships or the Canadian ships or on U.S. ships, to include uh, one embarkation on George Washington and another one on uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, because they didn't bring their sea combat commander with them, and so I would embark on there as their sea combat commander. Interesting. Dave, it sounds like you had a swell career that would make many people envious. Do you have any advice for those midshipmen who aspire to surface warfare as a career field? 
So first of all, as a swell, you're going to be a part of history. I've got a grandfather who was class 22. He had command of a destroyer and participated in, in uh, the campaign in Pacific. Uh, my dad was a class 52 graduate. He was the XO of Maddox during the Tonkin Gulf incident. Uh, he was in Vietnam during Tet, and um, he went on to be a flag officer running NAVC-06. And you've heard a little bit about what I've been doing. But being a swell, I can guarantee you, you'll be a part of history. All ships are good ships. You need to blossom where you're planted. There are no bad ships out there. If surface warfare was not your first choice, then excel at being a swell and earn your warfare pin. After that, you may be able to transfer to another designator, but don't burn any bridges by telling everyone you, you never wanted to be a swell. You never know. You may want to be a swell, and then if you burn bridges, you won't be able to. So you just got to enjoy what you're doing, and it'll all work out. The career path is just a guideline, not set in stone. I was a conventional swell until after my first department tour when the detailer said that after being a weapons officer on a frigate, I was going to be a first lieutenant on an oiler. And I thought to myself, that doesn't sound like fun. Uh, what, what else do you have out there? He said, well, we're looking for guys to go nuke. I said, well, had you looked at my academics at the Naval Academy? I said, you know, a 2.8 management major, it, I don't think we'll cut it. He said, nah, you can, you can do it. And, <laughs> was and Rickover so, still interviewing at this point? No, it was Kennard McKee who had been my soup. And so nine years after graduation, I went to Nuke Power School, didn't remember integrals or diffiqs or any of that stuff, but it's a Navy school, and I got through it. And so my, my message is there are no locked-in-stone career paths. So I went conventional SWO, and then nine years after graduation went Nuke. But as a Nuke, you still have to command conventional ships. There are no nuclear commands. And so the command of Impervious, the command of Stout, the command of Deseron 50 uh, were wonderful commands, and I kept, I kept my nuclear thing going, but I was also in command. While, while a SWO, you need to lead on the deck plates and not by email or from your stateroom. You need to get out and look around and get to know your troops because they are your main battery. You inspect, you know, you get what you inspect, not what you expect. If you hide in your stateroom, you will be surprised by what you don't know and you brought upon yourself. So you need to get into your spaces every day. You need to interact with your sailors every day because they crave good leadership. And you are that person. So make the best of your career. Have a blast. You know, your career may be only five years in the, as a SWO, but the mark you set will establish yourself for the rest of your life. Best of luck. That is all great inspirational uh, words for those who want to go surface warfare, so thank you for that advice. Captain Dave Jackson, thank you for joining me today on Preble Hall to discuss Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, Mine Warfare, command, and especially command of USS Impervious. You're welcome, Steve. It's been a blast.
Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.